0: This podcast is made possible in part by The Low Countries Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Catherine Smith, an old friend. And Catherine, we're delighted to have you back on the show. So glad to be here. And she has a rollicking history (laughs) entitled Baptists and Bootleggers, a Prohibition Expedition Through the South with Cocktail Recipes. I hope you weren't upset by my calling it a rollicking romp because (laughs) there's history there, but... It's not a traditional history, and I think how this book came about is a fascinating tale in itself.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. I wrote it to be rollicking in a romp. Though it is history, it does have footnotes, but it's um, it's different from any book I've written, and it was a whole lot of fun to write. But I guess you're referring to My Father, the Economist? Yes. Um, yeah, my father is Bruce Yandel, who's a very um, eminent economist. He taught at Clemson for many years, um, now retired, but does a lot of writing and speaking still. And his area of focus was regulation. So he came up with a, a theory about thirty-five years ago that he calls "bootleggers and Baptists," and it's sort of a, a new spin on "politics makes strange bedfellows." But a lot of th- and the way he described it is that bootleggers and Baptists are, will sometimes pull for the same goal, even though that for completely different reasons. And he used this as an example the blue laws in South Carolina. The Baptists want to have no, drinking, um, no legal drinking on Sundays because it's a sin. The bootleggers want no legal drinking on Sunday because it opens up the market for them. And this applies to all sorts of situations. So a few years ago, my father and my son, Adam Smith, who's also an economist, co-authored a book of essays on bootleggers and Baptists. And when I tell, I was so proud of them, Um, you know, they were 50 years apart in age and wrote this book together and were going around speaking. And I would tell people about it and they'd say, wow, that sounds like a fun book. And I'd say, well, it's an economics book uh, it's interesting, but it's not much fun well
0: and don't we, don't we call economics the dismal <laughs> yes, science
1: Yes, we do though the dad is uh, and Adam are both very gifted professors who've made it interesting, not quite so dismal but anyway, I thought, well wouldn't it be neat to write a really fun book about the real Baptist and bootleggers of prohibition and that's when this book uh, took shape
0: and and actually in South Carolina it wasn't just the Baptists but the Presbyterians and Methodists especially
1: were... the Methodist and that was true all over the country the Methodists were were much bigger drivers but um you know Bootleggers and Baptists just rolls off the tongue.
0: <laughs> well, and in terms of local politics and announced in South Carolina history, I can tell you your your father's theory was frequently cited uh, <laughs> with regard to the Blue Laws. Sure. Anyway, you decided to write the book mm-hmm. and you focused on the South and you took a lot of trip through the South. Mm-hmm. But you were just beginning this book when that nasty COVID came into
1: yeah. Play. Yeah. Well, the idea also was um, Prohibition ran from 1920 to 1933. So 2020 was the centennial year. I thought, well, this would be really cool to write a book 100 years after Prohibition began. I started researching the book in January. And, you know, we heard about this weird virus in China in February. Or it was getting closer. It was here. And um, so I got to a few of the stops on my prohibition expedition, um, Louisville, Kentucky, for example. And then, you know, we just had this total lockdown. And for the rest of the year, when I was writing the book, I was just having to dodge outbreaks and get places as fast as I could between the, the waves of the COVID. But the thing that was so stunning was that Almost everything was prohibited in 2020 for some reason or another at some time or another except alcohol. So the liquor stores never really closed. Um,
0: well, they're an essential store.
1: That's right. It was an essential business. Now, your church closed, <laughs> probably, <laughs> or went um, Zoom or, or whatever, but not the liquor store. Um, my local, local liquor store owner where I trade said that his business tripled in the spring of 2020. <laughs> So yeah, it was all, an interesting.
0: All right, you said you wanted to take a prohibition expedition through the South, and there is there is a map, and beginning at the north part of the, the tour is yeah. Washington D.C., right? Louisville and, and Lancaster, Kentucky, and then you then you come down through the the deep South, and you just hit communities, and you discuss characters and incidents in those locales.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some of them were were convenient. Like I I wrote about Sanford, Florida, is a good example of a small community and how the dries and the wets fought each other back and forth with referendums. And they would reverse the the drinking laws every two years. Um, And that was convenient because my sister-in-law lives there. (laughs) (laughs) And I had a a good connection with the museum.
0: we'll, 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 We'll talk about the Sanford laws. Yeah, they're reversing, but talk about that.
1: Well, that's what was going on um, nationwide from about 1874 when the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, started. And it was started by a Methodist woman, took off from the Midwest and just went all over the country. And it mobilized these women to try to change the drinking laws in their communities. So in Sanford, for example, they you know, they had their saloons, their German-owned saloons and places like that. And the population was very evenly divided against the drinkers and the non-drinkers. So every few years, there'd be a referendum or an election or something. And they would, I mean, they'd edge it out by maybe two votes. And then there'd be another one. And they'd edge it out by 10 votes on the other side. And, and then it really, you know, it really was decided when county by county and then when Florida went dry. And that, that was kind of—there was the local option in South Carolina and a lot of other states also. Well, so,
0: I think by the time Prohibition went into effect nationally, all southern states except for Louisiana, which yeah. is easy to understand. <laughs> but, uh, you
1: know, I ask that question every time I speak, which southern state? And no one guesses Louisiana until they've gone through every other state. I don't know why.
0: Well, I mean, goodness gracious, New Orleans. Yeah. I mean, Huey uh, Long? Yeah, <laughs> so you start off in your introduction. You actually go to a bar in Charleston called Prohibition, Prohibition yeah. and uh, the folks who were there didn't really know a lot about Prohibition.
1: Yeah, well, people have this this you know kind of vision of the the flappers and the dancers and the bathtub gin, and the Prohibition um, bar and restaurant in on King Street is is you know very much goes with their bartenders wear suspenders and caps and. That kind of thing. But when I walked around, there was a picture of Carrie Nation on the wall. And this is the woman who took her hatchet and just destroyed saloons all over the Midwest. And the hostess was taking me around and I came up to the picture. She said, I wish I knew something about that lady. And I thought, man, um, and I've been surprised how many people did not know who Carrie Nation was. She's one of the most fascinating figures of the whole um, whole story. And she's on the cover of the book along with Al Capone. So She's say, the Baptist you... and he's the bootlegger.
0: Well, I mean, you've got two photographs of, of individuals that would scare the pants off of most, pe- most people.
1: <laughs> I, know. Uh, I know, Al Capone winking. <laughs> Is that creepy?
0: Um, and then
1: Carrie was always photographed with her Bible in one end and her little hatchet in the other. And she's formidable.
0: In your introduction, you talk about coastal states in the South, Mm -hmm. South Carolina, Florida, uh, Georgia, Alabama. Mm -hmm. um, Louisiana. And my hometown, Mobile, was a big import for rum running. Yeah. Uh, In fact, uh, your famous federal prosecutor, and we'll talk about her in a minute, actually— had a grand jury, federal grand jury, Mobile, indicted 71 prominent citizens. Oh, it was
1: everybody,
0: I think. It was was a judge, Mm -hmm. uh, a local legislator, the chief of police, and of course, the president of the Carnival Association. (laughs) You can't have Mardi Gras without something to drink. Oh my gosh, yeah. And and in Mobile, they were really running their rum and other things from Cuba because it's a quick trip trip. across the Gulf of Mexico to uh, Mobile. And there are lots of little inlets and bayous That you can evade.
1: Well, that was it. You know, the federal authorities were depending on the state and local law enforcement to work with them enforcing prohibition and in most places they weren't the least bit interested in doing that louisiana being a, a case in point um new york state was another so the federal authorities were just so totally outgunned and outmanned and outmaneuvered by the huge numbers of people running rum and making moonshine and, and that kind of thing and, but do and, you know who the prosecutor was in that mobile case um it was hugo black
0: Oh, it was Hugo Black?
1: She, Hugo Black. Um, Mabel Willibrand did not prosecute personally. She would hire, you know, she would work with it. So he was, I guess he was the, but he became a Supreme Court judge.
0: Well, he was a U.S. Senator from Alabama. As, yeah, yeah,
1: as, as well. L- later, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then went to the Supreme Court under FDR.
0: All uh, right, let's move on to your romp, because uh, they're, they're fabulous stories. Let, we can start here in South Carolina. Let's do. And Ben Tillman. <laughs> yeah in the eighteen nineties when he was he was governor, it was clear that the voters of South Carolina wanted to go dry. Mm-hmm. So a bill passed the House of Representatives that was gonna make South Carolina go dry, banned sale of alcohol. Uh, it then got into the Senate and Tillman changed things. Mm-hmm. You want to tell him tell us about that.
1: Yeah, he he didn't believe he was not a drinker himself, but he didn't believe prohibition would work, but he saw a way to throw a bone to the to the dries and then also appease the wets and make a lot of money for the state. So he proposed a state-controlled monopoly on liquor. And it had been tried in other places. I uh, thought one was funny was in Athens, Georgia, where I was an undergraduate many years ago. They had a, a dispensary there. And if a student wanted to buy liquor, he had to get a letter from the president of the university <laughs> in order to do so. As I, I said in the book that if that had happened when I was a student, the president wouldn't have had time to do anything else important, not even go to football games. But anyway, um, that's what Tillman proposed. And on Christmas Eve, he rammed it through the legislature and it became the the law. It brought in huge amounts of money to the Treasury, but was just a foretaste of how hard it was going to be to enforce prohibition nationally.
0: It also became a major source of corruption. Yes. And it was up to each county whether or not they wanted to have a local dispensary. Mm-hmm. And, of course, now dispensary bottles are collector's items.
1: Highly collectible. Yeah. Uh, Isn't that funny?
0: Yeah. And uh, in Charleston, they didn't observe the law anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they they just winked at the, what they call the blind tigers, yeah. the, the illegal uh, saloons and, and what have you. And, of course, one of the places or the places where there was a lot of opposition to the dispensary was Florence County. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had what was called the Dispensary War.
1: Had a yeah, huge um riot there in Florence. And the um, Tillman was had this state police force, the, the constabulary that he started to enforce the the dispensary law. There was a shootout in Florence. Um, A couple of his uh, constables were killed. And he tried to, you know, get the uh, state guard to come out and intervene. And the the guard unit in Charleston just said, no thanks, we're not coming.
0: And the same thing was true in Columbia.
1: Yeah, they just weren't going to play. And so he had all these supporters that, what they call them, the wool hats? And he called on his, you know his supporters, and they came and subdued the riot in, uh, in Florence, but it got very ugly. Um, and, and, you know, these were sort of trigger-happy guys in the constabulary a lot of times, and if they did something or murdered somebody or pulled the trigger too soon, Tillman would just pardon them. He was uh, quite a character.
0: The Dispensary War made the career of the Gonzales brothers and the state newspaper, mm-hmm. because one of them was there with the uh, latest from the front lines of the Dispensary War.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, they hated Tillman.
0: So, yes, they they, yeah. they 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 hated Tillman. I just,
1: it's just so shocking to read of, of newspaper editors just being murdered in broad daylight on the streets. There were some. Um, one of the Gonzales brothers, and then a newspaper editor in Nashville, who became a prohibition martyr, just just killed in cold blood.
0: Well, there's a backstory to the. But first yeah. of all, uh, the newspaper editor was murdered by James Tillman, who is the nephew of Governor, Governor yeah. then later Senator uh, Tillman, and he was uh, acquitted in a jury trial. Uh, In Lexington County, they moved the venue from Richland County to Lexington County, where he was acquitted. And there are lots of stories about how that happened. The jury selection was interesting (laughs) and that kind of thing. Uh, But the Nashville story had to do with the newspaper editor was really writing some libelous things about people who'd beat him in politics. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, yeah, he was gunned down. Uh, But then his stature no longer stands
1: yeah, you know, he was a martyr to the the cause of prohibition, but he was a terrible racist, and you know Tillman also. So, a lot of these people are long overdue having their statues removed.
0: Well, Ben Tillman's still on the statehouse grounds, and we won't get into that. Yeah, he can't be moved. Yeah, uh, now that was in Nashville that this.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: but that statue did. It. I think you said it just disappeared.
1: I think they've taken, I think they took it away for safekeeping. It was damaged.
0: <laughs> well, we digress. We need, to, we, <laughs> yeah. we need to we need to get back to to prohibition. <clears throat> yeah. Catherine, we need to pause for a moment okay. and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal and I'm talking with Catherine Smith about her latest book, Baptist and Bootleggers, a Prohibition Expedition Through the South with Cocktail Recipes. All right. With cocktail recipes, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Have you sampled all of them? Most of them.
1: Whenever I went to into a bar during my research for this or a speakeasy or a tour at a distillery or something, I would look for recipes that were um, peculiar to that community or had something to do with the 20s. So there are a lot of recipes that are um, related to the Prohibition period. Some of them are modern recipes that have been developed, you know, in modern cocktail culture. But, yeah, um, and I actually have a blog where I post a cocktail of the week with its history every week. So, um, yeah, I have to do a certain amount of sampling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, if I can find it here, uh, the, the martini, the—
1: The FDR martini? W-
0: well, there are two martinis, yeah. and both of them are rather interesting. The FDR martini, one ounce of gin, one-half-ounce dry vermouth, a teaspoon of olive brine, a lemon twist, and a cocktail olive. That's not as strong as Capone had a martini, did he not?
1: Yeah, the Capone was actually uh, a newer recipe. But yeah, this is an ounce of gin. Most martinis are an ounce and a half, and... Even two ounces. I always I was having dinner with some friends, and they ordered vodka martinis and said, "Hold the vermouth." Yeah. <laughs> it's like drinking a glass well, of chilled well, vodka. Well, act-
0: actually, that FDR martini is a is a fairly tame one. Yeah, and the proportions are are interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. two two to one. Usually, it's the vermouth is not quite that
1: Mm -mm. and fdr yeah fdr was always people made fun of him for his for his high vermouth martinis so but it's not you put the lemon twist and and go around the 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 glass with the lemon twist and um i'm not a real fan of dirty martinis this is a dirty martini usually they overdo it with the brine and you feel like you're drinking a glass of the atlantic ocean so um (laughs) I I like a cleaner martini than that. And then the Missy Martini, my first nonfiction book was The the Gatekeeper about FDR's private secretary, Missy LeHand. So my son-in-law, who is the co-owner of a restaurant in Charleston called Dapp's, developed a Missy Martini for me. And um, and it's really good. He kind of based it on the French 75 um, recipe, but it's... um, it's got gin and St. Germain elderflower, cointreau, um, lemon, orange bitters, and then you top it off with champagne.
0: Well, I noticed that it keeps adding champagne. I mm-hmm. mean, that gets to be a pretty potent yeah. beverage Yeah,
1: I said it was like Missy, who was sweet but very strong. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, uh, there are lots of, of prohibition stories in, in South Carolina, and one that has always fascinated me because it happened here in Columbia. Uh during the Spanish influenza epidemic. And that was the Columbia Medical Association petitioned the state to prescribe whiskey as a prophylactic for the flu. And you could be sold with a medical prescription. The vote was fairly close in the Columbia Medical Association it was something like 7 to 5. And the complaint was made by the minority that all seven who voted for it were members of Trinity Episcopal
1: Church. <laughs> Those <Whiskapalians>. <laughs> <laughs> Uh Well, the, there were two big loopholes in the Volstead Act, which was the enforcement mechanism for prohibition. One of them was medicinal alcohol. So um, I think there were 10... Whiskey companies in the country that got a license to produce medicinal alcohol, and that's what saved some of the the uh, distilleries in Kentucky. And then the other was for um, wine for sacramental purposes. So some of the wineries in California were saved by this loophole that enabled them to supply the the Catholic and Episcopal churches and, um, and also synagogues. But they were both dreadfully abused by the medical profession, by pharmacies. And then by people who all of a sudden discovered that they were rabbis operating out of a two room tenement in the Bronx, and were you know opened a little storefront and would just sign up anyone who came in to buy some wine as a member of their synagogue. So you had you had Rabbi O'Leary and you know that kind of thing going on.
0: And you mentioned the the enforcement mechanism. It was it was difficult to do. Yeah. So let's talk about this female prosecutor, federal prosecutor, because first of all, for a woman to have that much power, legal power, was very unusual in in the
1: 1930s. Yeah. Mabel Walker Willebrandt was her name. And she actually had come to work. She worked for the government in the 1920s. Um, She was probably one of the two honest people in the Harding administration, the other would have being Herbert Hoover. And she was appointed the assistant attorney general for prohibition enforcement and in running the federal prison system. So she had these two huge jobs. She worked under the Treasury Department because it was revenue collection, and Andrew Mellon was the Treasury Secretary. He actually owned a distillery, so he wasn't a big fan of prohibition enforcement himself. And the problem was just it was was finding honest people to work as prohibition agents. They were very pa- sorry very poorly paid, and as just as with the um, the system in South Carolina with the dispensary, it was easy to bribe people. Um, there was a lot of corruption, and she had to fire seven hundred and fifty of these agents in just six years because they were corrupt or inept or for one reason or another, drunks. Um, She said to the very end, if she could find 4,000 honest people to enforce prohibition, she could enforce it. But it was impossible to find 4,000 honest people.
0: Now, she was very much uh, a WCTU. Person herself, right?
1: Well, actually, before she was appointed, she wasn't. She was a public defender in California, had um, and had joined a cocktail or or two herself. But she was a very a big believer in the Constitution. So this was the law of the land. She was going to enforce that law. So I don't know that she had a, a kind of, any kind of an uh, affiliation with the WCTU, but she was a lawyer. She was called the Portia of Prohibition and was very famous, one of the, the most famous women in America at the time. So she's another person who just faded into obscurity. Well,
0: Catherine, I probably probably ought to tell our folks, like we keep using WCTU. Yeah. That's the yeah. Women's... Christ- Women's
1: Christian Temperance Union. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which- Wait should we get to Wanpur. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it, one of the interesting things about the WCTU is the fact that in late 19th and early 20th century America, black and white women were involved with yes. the WCTU. Ida Tarbell, who was a, a a famous African-American reformer, and journalist, was was very much uh, a part of the WCTU. And here in South Carolina, Celia Dyle Saxon, who is a famous African-American educator, USC's just named a building after her, uh, she was very involved in the WCTU in South Carolina.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but, it,
1: but they segregated them.
0: Yeah, they. But, yeah. but they were still members of you know of the same organization, and they were both white and black women were after the same.
1: Right. And I think another interesting thing was that some of the WCTU leaders in, in South Carolina saw this as a time to rebuild ties with their northern sisters. You know, they've had this huge we'd gone through the civil war and reconstruction so much anger and bitterness still the lost cause and all that and and they said well this is a time for us to join together and have a war on alcohol so it was sort of soothing those broken places in the country
0: well and and i think that's an important point because we're we're dealing with the late 19th century which is just a generation removed from Right. The Civil War and into the years building up to, to 1920 when Prohibition uh, does become the law of the land through amending the Constitution. Most people don't realize that, you know, amending mm-hmm. the Constitution.
1: Mm-hmm. And another thing that is, that's so important is the way the, the Prohibition and the suffrage movements were intertwined. It was generally the same women working for both things. And it was all about empowering women. Uh, Temperance was about giving them power over their lives and being able to kick out their drunken husbands and, you know, still have the power to own a home and just things they didn't have. And then suffrage, again, was about getting the vote. So those were very much intertwined. Susan B. Anthony's original cause was temperance, and then she moved on to suffrage, but she was always very active in the temperance movement as well.
0: Among those who opposed temperance were frequently working class folks, because they would say, well, you want to close our saloons, mm-hmm. but then you, you have your fancy private clubs downtown where people get drunk.
1: Yeah and in fact that was written into the Volstead Act too that any liquor you had on hand the stroke of the clock on January 16th 1920 you could keep so these fancy clubs and these rich people just stocked their wine cellars and their you know their uh, liquor cabinets and carried on. Um, one of the most egregious examples was the president at the time was Warren Harding. He had been a senator and was elected in 1920, and he simply moved the liquor that was in his house in Washington to the White House. And when he had drunk all that up, he was an alcoholic. Um, the Justice Department was him with stuff that had been confiscated. So he was the scofflaw in chief.
0: That didn't hit the press so much. I mean, just yeah. think about what's going on in the in the U.K. now with... Uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson. <laughs> ...having to admit in January that, yes, there had been some riotous parties at uh, 10 Downing Street mm-hmm. when the rest of the country was locked down. Mm-hmm. Okay, Catherine, let, let's start on your expedition. Okay. Let's move out of South Carolina. Okay. Because we've told a lot of good yeah, stories.
1: Let's go to Florida, which was um, one of the prohibition expeditions, because I do a chapter called Al Capone slept here because there are so many Al Capone stories and legends and you know if Al Capone has slept all the places it was said he had slept he would never have stayed a night in Chicago he couldn't have run his his empire of crime but there are places that were documented and one of them of course was Miami Beach where he owned a home things were getting hot in Chicago he tried to buy um, a home in Los Angeles got run out of town Tried to buy a home in St. Petersburg, uh, New Orleans, and finally found some um, amenable public officials in Miami Beach who were willing to be straw men for him to purchase a mansion there. And that's where he lived um, until he was sent to prison. And it was where he came back to and died. So we decided to follow his trail. All the way down to Miami Beach where we rented a motorboat and and captain and rode past his house. Which you can't see at all from the road and you can see just a little bit from the beach. You can see his pool and all that. But it's
0: it's still there. It's
1: still there. It's still well, that, there.
0: Actually that's unusual itself because oh, yeah. most everything is being torn down for Super Mac mansions. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know. And it's it's a fairly modest place. Um it's been on the market off and on. I think it was used as for movies and as an event center, and I'm not sure of what the the story is right now. But, um, yeah, so he was there. He was at the Sealback Hotel in Louisville where we we spent the night. And it, it, F. Scott Fitzgerald was another figure associated with, with the Sealback. Beautiful old hotel. Let's see, America's Georgia has this lovely old hotel. And he was said to have spent the night there in what is now called the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter Suite because the <laughs> Carters really did spend the night there. <laughs> so... Um, so that was that was interesting to follow Al Capone's trail. Um, we also looked in search of Carrie Nation and found her birthplace in the middle of a cow pasture in Kentucky, um, just a falling down old farmhouse. And if you've ever thought that something being on the National Register would save it, it's not true. It's on so, the National Register of Historic Places and it's just falling in.
0: So whoever owns it doesn't care. and yeah. it's, and, and it's not a, Nobody has wanted to create a shrine there. You've got, you've got some, you've got some shrine, historic shrines in places in Florida yeah. that have to do with Prohibition, right? In Sanford?
1: Um, their museum has done some stuff there. They've got a really nice local museum. I think Carrie Nation, I think Medicine Lodge, Kansas, where she started her crusade, I believe there is something, you know, there. Um, and then she spent some time in, in Arkansas also toward the end of her life.
0: So when you, t- you said Capone went through Louisville and Americas, so that was actually—he literally was driving from Chicago.
1: Mm-hmm. Or taking a train. Or taking yeah. the train. You know, yeah. Okay.
0: That place in, in uh, Louisville was fascinating. Yeah. But- the Sealback. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When F. Scott Fitzgerald was in the Army, he would come down there to drink in the bar and got thrown out repeatedly and it was said that he met a man named George Remus, who was at one time one of the biggest bootleggers in the country, and that that was his model for Jake Adsby, though it's hard to know. But the George Remus story is really fascinating, too.
0: Is that hotel still there? Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's part of a, a big chain. I can't think if it's Hilton or Hyatt or what, but they've really kept the lobby. Very much as it was. Um, Their bar is part of the Urban Bourbon Trail in Louisville. Just an astounding menu of bourbons. I mean, you know, you usually go to a bar and you might have five or six choices. You'd have like 10 pages of (laughs) bourbons listed that you could order by the glass or the shot or whatever, so... Um, that place, I used their, their sealback cocktail, which actually has champagne in it, also was the recipe well, for that chapter.
0: I'm interested in the recipes. Let's, yeah. let's okay. What page is that on?
1: Oh, here we go. It's the For Medicinal Purposes. It's on page 87. And it's got some similarities with the the Missy cocktail, too, but it's one and a half ounces Old Forester bourbon, ounce of Cointreau, seven dashes of Angostura bitters, and seven dashes of Pichad's bitters, and then you... You put champagne in it. It's served in a champagne flute.
0: Oh, gosh, that, so. sounds, that sounds like a real headache maker.
1: <laughs> I, I didn't have a headache after that. And after and the next day, I tasted <laughs> bourbon all day long. Oh, uh, boy. And went to a fabulous speakeasy in Louisville. Um, that was another thing that was fun, is we would find these modern speakeasies. Um, there's one in Knoxville that's behind. has a secret door from the lobby in the Oliver Hotel that takes you into a really charming speakeasy. And the one in Louisville was called Hell or High Water. And it actually had a a front room. And, you know, you'd be taken down this winding corridor into the building. It's just it's really, you know, with just a light over the door, just like the old speakeas were. were. The um, American Prohibition Museum in Savannah, great place to visit, also has an upstairs speakeasy.
0: Well, now, why would there be an American Prohibition Museum in Savannah?
1: It was called the Spigot of the South. Because there was so much rum running going on there, and that was another place where Mabel Walker Wilbrandt had one of her really big cases against a, a family of, uh, of rum runners who were <laughs> so nonchalant about what they did. They fielded a baseball team called the Bootleggers. <laughs> so, uh,
0: now that's interesting. That Savannah would be the spigot and not tra- of the South, and not Charleston.
1: Well, it was probably a pretty good competition between the two, but. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the Prohibition Museum's fascinating,
0: and and of course when you're dealing with rum running on the East Coast to Savannah or Charleston, they're usually coming from Bermuda.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was when they were, and then Jamaica, and then and then a lot of rum runners just started going directly to Europe and and running, you know, Scotch and brandy and that kind of thing. But what happened more and more during Prohibition is you were getting really bad liquor, really rot gut stuff, and they would even put it into bottles and forged the labels, and you thought you were getting some really fine Scotch whiskey, and you were just getting some rot gut that had been colored with iodine.
0: I, I, I was going <laughs> to say, that covering color with iodine. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, same uh, thing with moonshine. It was it just got to be worse and worse co- quality, and it would literally kill you, um, some of the moonshine.
0: Well, and of course, bathtub gin just doesn't sound yeah. very—it sounds— Cute for the Roaring Twenties, and you think about, yeah, it's made in a bathtub.
1: Yeah, uh, no, nah. that was the the thing is, um, quality of what you got improved tremendously once Prohibition ended and the federal and state regulation of alcohol began again.
0: Well, let's let's talk about uh, moonshiners, okay? Because they've they've got an interesting part in uh, South Carolina history.
1: Absolutely. Uh, well, moonshine was made everywhere. But in the, the mountains of Appalachia uh, was, even after the Civil War was over, people who'd been making moonshine to trade in their communities or for cash or goods or whatever, were suddenly approached by revenue agents, what Snuffy Smith called revenueers, wanting to them to pay excise tax, and they were paying excise tax to pay off the war debt of the Union, which you can imagine didn't sit real well with a lot of people. And so that began a moonshine war in the 19th century and the moonshine making just continued and when the state went dry Georgia went dry in 1907 this this huge market opened up for moonshine made in the mountains. We focused on Dawsonville which has a moonshine festival every year and is also calls itself the birthplace of stock car racing because the, the young guys in their souped up Fords would race down the mountain to with the moonshine and take it to the big markets of Atlanta and, and other cities. Um, and interestingly, this, this really had its peak in the post-Prohibition period because people had gotten used to the taste of moonshine. And the 39 and 40 model Fords were the big moonshining cars. So a lot of people come with their old Fords to the Moonshine Festival, and they have them on display, and some of them have been restored, and some of them look just like they did back in the day.
0: Well, of course, moonshining was not limited to the mountains. No, it was uh, everywhere. As uh, the late William Price Fox, uh, in his book Moonshine Light, Moonshine Bright, Uh <laughs> Down the bluff road in the swamps below Columbia, and people would run liquor on the bluff road. In fact, I've been in Columbia since the 1960s. If you loaded your car and had it in the trunk and it was hanging down in the back, yeah. older Colombians say, "Look like you're running liquor up the bluff road." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and and actually, as as Fox talks about in w- in one of his stories in that in that collection, there was a moonshine still within a block of the governor's mansion <laughs> yeah. in the basement of a house. There's still moonshiners in South Carolina, not very many, but they, they every yeah. year or two you'll see one a still is destroyed by yeah. the revenuers.
1: Yeah, but we've got legal moonshine now too. And the, the difference, of course, is you're paying excise tax. The first legal moonshine distillery in the state opened at Anderson and, uh, about 10 years ago palmetto moonshine or palmetto whiskey they're making um, whiskey now also and that could be got to be quite a thing you know legal moonshine but the moonshine today they have really high proof stuff but they also have a milder flavored moonshine and you i've got cocktails in that to make with moonshine
0: but now moonshine used to be just white it was not brown
1: no uh, it's pure alcohol it's not been aged so when you age it you Depending on what the you know the mash bill, what the ingredients are, you're winding up with whiskey or bourbon or rye, and it turns brown that way. But the moon, you know, the thing with a lot of the distilleries that opened, they wanted to sell something right away. So moonshine, you can make it one day, sell it the next. Then they'd put up stuff to age, and now they're offering whiskey and uh, some pretty good stuff.
0: And again, going back to the 1960s when real moonshine. Authentic moonshine, yeah. not anything that paid the excise tax, was mm-hmm. available, yeah. and there was a way to test it. And I can testify to this. In certain, <laughs> certain counties of South Carolina, you have a six ounce—you know, the old Coca-Cola yeah. bottle, six and a, six ounces. Yeah. You take a piece of what was called har- horse candy or hard candy, uh-huh. or you've got your moonshine in there, and you drop the candy in it, if it dissolves before it gets to the bottom, then it's good stuff.
1: (laughs) Think what it's doing to your esophagus.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Catherine, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Catherine Smith about her latest book, Baptists and Bootleggers, a Prohibition Expedition (laughs) Through the South with Cocktail Recipes. Now, Catherine, you've got lots of wonderful characters in this book mm-hmm. um who's your favorite
1: oh carrie nation ah carrie nation because she was just so out there but um, my second favorite would have to be pauline morton sabin who was the new york socialite who led the charge against prohibition and in a matter of um four years got it
0: repealed well now we need to talk about that story because yeah. everybody knows Carrie Nation. Who is this woman and, and what did she do?
1: She was a, a a Republican. She was one of the most active Republican women. in. Uh, she was the first woman to serve on the National Republican Committee. She was an heiress. She was married to one of the wealthiest bankers in the country. She had this very privileged life. And she initially had been a supporter of Prohibition. She thought it would be, she said that she had two teenage sons and thought, well, that a world without alcohol would be a beautiful thing. But she kept alcohol in her home for guests and that kind of thing. And she just got sick of the hypocrisy when these dry voting lawmakers would show up and get drunk on her liquor. And she also saw what was happening with speakeasies that were, there were you know, no rules and very young Boys and girls were coming and getting drunk, and she thought it was just a huge failure. So she supported Herbert Hoover in 1928, raised a lot of money for him, and she felt assured that he was going to address prohibition um, as soon as he got into office and moved to repeal it. And she was so disappointed when he didn't take those steps that she resigned from the Republican Party and started an organization. And I'm telling you, it's an acronym, WANPER, the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Repeal. And she galvanized this huge army that soon outstripped the Women's Christian Temperance Union forces. And there, a lot of them were housewives. Working women, nurses, teachers, the like, and they had just gotten sick of prohibition too. Mrs. Sabin was very wealthy, and her socialite friends came on board. They brought their own money, so you could join this organization for free. But they had all these you know these women eager to work for it, and she actually endorsed FDR in nineteen thirty two because the Democrats had a repeal platform, uh, repeal plank in their platform, and. When it was repealed, she eventually became a Republican again. (laughs) But uh, she was an amazing woman. And one of the really interesting things is that she owned a house, a plantation house called The Oaks in Berkeley County. Very famous and historic building, which is, alas, no longer there. And she had a National Executive Committee meeting in Charleston had a big rally here, entertained guests by taking them to Magnolia Gardens and Middleton Place and all that sort of thing. I just thought she was a fascinating woman, probably could have led the D-Day invasion on her own, you know.
0: And of course, what you've just done was talking about her as I have said repeatedly for many years, you can always find a South Carolina connection to <laughs> anybody or anything that was important. Isn't and, that the truth? Uh, so she's got this organization, but in order to get it repealed, you're going to have to have an act of Congress mm-hmm. or they're going to have to pass it, right? Right.
1: But what happened when FDR got elected is is they— had a huge turnover in the Congress. So it was dominated by Democrats. That was the Democratic Party platform was to repeal it. So the repeal um, in the form of passing the twenty first amendment happened before FDR even took office. But he um as a as a revenue um, gambit, he said that he thought that it would be good to loosen up the Bolstead Act to allow for the sale of 3.2% beer and light wine. And that was part of his first 100 days of legislation. So the, the Anheuser-Busch Company got out the the famous Clydesdales, the soon-to-be famous Clydesdales, their horses, and brought a case of beer to the White House <laughs> And that brought an industry that had been illegal back into, under legal footing, they could collect excise tax, they could collect income tax and all that. So it brought a big revenue stream in. And meanwhile, the amendment was going through the states for ratification, and it was ratified um, in December of 1933.
0: Did South Carolina ratify it?
1: No, they voted it down.
0: (laughs) I figured.
1: (laughs) And actually, the local option to um, have Liquor in your city or county did not pass until 1935 in South Carolina.
0: Well, and of course, then we had our own strange laws with regard to alcohol. Yeah. And, you know, for people who are are new to South Carolina, Catherine, and that is not exactly part of your story. Yeah. But you've got local option. Right, I moved here in 1965. I could go buy a bottle of liquor. I could take it home. But I couldn't buy a drink, a mixed drink in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. So how do I get a drink in the restaurant? I put my bottle of whiskey in a brown bag and carry it into the restaurant, and I can buy the mixers in the restaurant and supply my own liquor.
1: Which was very cost-effective for the customer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And of course, then that changed, and we went to the mini bottles. Mm -hmm. The argument was You never know if you're getting the real liquor that you order, uh, you know, is it really single malt scotch or whatever. According to the law, and again, this made mixed drinks very difficult. It's hard to do a martini uh, with a a mini bottle. You could get the gin, uh, but you couldn't get the vermouth. Yeah. The drinks had to be, those little mini bottles had to be opened in front of the customer at the table.
1: Right. Right. And so if you have a drink that's got very, several different kinds of alcohol, you've got a really expensive drink there. So you were kind of left to rum and Coke and bourbon and Coke and yeah, bourbon and Sprite. And
0: and then eventually uh, liquor by the drink yeah. passed. Yeah. But both the mini bottles and liquor by the drink referendums were opposed by the religious groups in this yeah. state yeah. again. Yeah, the bootleggers didn't get out enough people to vote that time because.
1: Well, actually, the bootleggers probably supported it also, but <laughs> but the, the the regular drinkers get you know. And every state has its own quirks in the law too, um, especially in the South. I think, and there's still dry counties, but yeah, South Carolina. If anything's going to be done strangely, it will be here. That's well, my conclusion. Uh, yeah.
0: Growing up in in Mobile and Alabama had fairly strict liquor laws, Mm -hmm. 21 even for beer, but Biloxi, Mississippi was only 50 miles away. And so we didn't call them designated drivers, but you could drive to uh, Biloxi and have a a wild Friday night or Saturday night and then come back back home. Uh, Yeah.
1: And that was what made the the border counties in, in South Carolina. I thought one of the really interesting stories was about Aiken County, which had a dispensary in North Augusta. So when Georgia went by, dry in 1907, the Augustans just started going over the Savannah River. They went to North Augusta. Aiken was able to build 21 new schools, raise teacher pay, <laughs> do all this stuff with the revenue that had come in from the Georgians. Oh Well, can we um, talk about the cemetery side trips a bit? Yes. Um, Let me go back to Dawsonville and one of the most interesting cemetery side trips. In each chapter, when I talk about these particular people, if you want to make a trip, uh, you can follow my Prohibition Expedition instructions, including finding the places they're buried. And one of the most interesting memorials um, in a cemetery is to Lloyd C., who was a young stock car driver. He was working for a man named Raymond Parks, who owned his race team, and Raymond Parks had bought brand-new 39 Fords for Lloyd and his cousin, Roy Hall. And Roy was a, I mean, they were both great drivers, but Lloyd was just an astounding driver. Um, Bill France, who eventually founded NASCAR, was on the the circuit then. And he said Lloyd was the most naturally talented race car driver he ever saw. So one um, August in 1941, this is a few months before Pearl Harbor, Lloyd raced three races in 15 days, won all three, beat Bill France all three times, including the one at Lakewood Speedway in Atlanta. So he came home with this huge trophy. One of of his cousins he operated a still with because he was still making his income that way. That cousin came over angry because he said Lloyd had cheated him out of some sugar that they had needed to make their moonshine, shot him dead, and then took his race winnings out of his pocket. Well, he went to prison for 10 years, and Raymond Parks was so brokenhearted about this that he put up this huge granite monument to Lloyd C. in the cemetery in Dawsonville. And it's got a relief of the Lakewood trophy that he won and a relief of Lloyd in his little car. And there's even a little porcelain portrait of lloyd looking out the window of the car so it's just an astonishing monument and there are some very unusual ones in in the book that you can find and along the way you stumble on a lot of things like the all the guys who died in the um hunley and charleston and you know i I just find graveyards interesting
0: and let's talk about mr hobson and the memorial in White Point Garden in Charleston.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hobson was one of the great leaders. He was called the father of Prohibition. He was Alabama—I can't remember if he was a senator or a congressman. He was congressman. Congressman. He was eventually voted out of office because his more progressive views on race. There was a a ship named in his honor that sank off the, the Charleston coast long after Hobson was dead. And there is a monument to all the men lost on the Hobson. Uh, with uh, at White Point Garden, with interesting pavers. Each paver is a, a stone from a different state, which had so, sailors on board.
0: Hobson was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor right. for his service in the U.S. Navy during the, Spanish. the Spanish-American War. Yeah,
1: he had this huge, luxurious mustache, and he was he said he was the most kissed man in America after the Spanish-American <laughs> War. <laughs> I just love stumbling on well, these people.
0: <laughs> you know, we haven't even gotten into our G-man hero from South Carolina. That's right.
1: Yeah, Melvin Purvis was one of the most famous men of the FBI in the 1930s. He was um, was very nice looking. He was quite a character. He was named the special agent in charge in Chicago by J. Edgar Hoover, and he came up here with a Pierce Arrow automobile, a Palomino horse, and an African-American butler named President. And and, uh, Hoover jokingly called him the Clark Gable of the service. But he was um, the guy who ran down Babyface Nelson and Pretty Boy Floyd and John Dillinger, who was public enemy number one. And brought them to justice and, you know, in a couple of cases, killed them. Hoover became very jealous of Purvis's fame. And he eventually just drummed him out of the service. And uh, Purvis, it, it really broke his heart. He came home. He he served in World War II. He was an investigator for the Nuremberg trials after the war. And in 1960, he was found dead in his house with a gunshot wound to the head. And whether it was an accident or or a suicide was never determined. But he is quite a hero. Um, In his grave in uh, Mount Hope Cemetery in Florence, it's it's a carving in Latin words that translate to, I was often afraid, but I never ran, which I thought was a great epitaph for a a G-man.
0: Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. (laughs) Okay. Any last words you'd like to give our listeners before we sign off today?
1: Two things. Um, My book is published by the wonderful Evening Post Books in Charleston. And then I also have a blog that has cocktail recipes on it called bootleggers.substack.com.
0: We'll have a link from that on our website. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Catherine Smith, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. It was fun. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was fun having Catherine Smith back on the show, and her latest book, Baptists and Bootleggers, A Prohibition Expedition Through the South, includes not only the story of rum runners and moonshiners, but the individual who helped bring about the end of Prohibition had a home in Berkeley County, South Carolina. So, like many other things... This story is all a part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.